Hello, and welcome to another DBSA podcast. That stands for Dear Bitches and Smart Authors, and I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me this week is Marjorie Liu, who is connected to me through her publicist because she has both a book and an animated movie that she wrote coming out, and they wanted to know if I was interested in talking to her about those things. <laughs> yeah! I originally met up with Marjorie last fall in Australia when we were both guests of the Brisbane and Melbourne Writers Festival. So she and I had had a wonderful conversation in Australia, and it was really fun to continue it over a podcast, even though instead of being in the same place with a multi-level tower of sandwiches, she was in Tokyo and I was in New Jersey, which is not nearly the same thing. In the interview, we talk about the final book in her series, which is out now, as well as, as, well as a bunch of other subjects, including manga minorities, portrayals of minorities in popular culture. It's a very wide-ranging conversation, but I hope you find it interesting. The music that you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater, and I will have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is. And Penguin would like to remind you, don't miss Feral Heat, Jennifer Ashley's paranormal romance of forbidden desire. For a shifter, there's a fine, dangerous line between ecstasy and savagery, and these two lovers are about to walk it. I'll have information at the end of the podcast about this book and where you can find it. And now, on with the podcast. So you are in, are you in Tokyo or Hong Kong? I'm in Tokyo at the moment. What are you doing in Tokyo? I came for a literary festival. Awesome. And, yeah. And then, um, and then we decided to stay like an extra 30 days. Well, sure. Yeah, why not? Why not, right? So it's kind of a combination of research, research trip and vacation. Isn't it nice to be a writer? Everything you do is so portable. It, you know what? It's it is such a blessing. I have to <laughs> like, tell you, it is it is a blessing in ways that 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 if one tries to describe it, then they think you're bragging. But it's no, like, I it's believe so me. Have alphabet will travel. You know, I always wanted to tell stories. You know, I love to read. I always wanted to tell stories. And as I got older, you know, because it, it took me a while to figure out that, like, that one could write for a living. Even later, like, I knew that even if I ever wrote a book, like, chances were good. I'd, you know, like, chances were, like, more than good. I would still need a day job. But um, And you but have be, degrees in Asian studies and – do you have a, a secondary degree in science? Yes, yeah, uh, in biomedical ethics. Yeah, you know, like you do. Because <laughs> the two really go, go together, right? Totally, Yeah. <laughs> What is it? John Scalzi has a saying. He says, um, I'm too lazy to fail. <laughs> uh, at this point, yeah, like I, I sort of feel the same way that, that this, is, this is it for me. You have this incredibly cool career. Like, do you ever turn it's, around and look behind you and go, holy shit, look what I did. I, you know, I do, actually. I, <laughs> I really, I, well, because it's, it's, it's not out of like, it's just this sort of weird combination of surprise and then just... Like, I don't know. Like, I'm afraid. I'm almost afraid to think about it too much because yep. I'm afraid, you know, Do I don't not look to go directly away. at the awesome. The awesome exactly. might go well, away. Well, no, but it's, you know, just being able to have the opportunity to tell stories in different ways. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I think we talked about this before when we were, because we, when we were in Australia, but I, to, to be able to write novels and have the opportunity to tell a story in, in prose format, but then to also be able to tell a story as a comic book combining both the visual and and the literary it's profoundly it's like a profoundly pleasurable experience oh <laughs> like, I, can, I, I cannot imagine 
It really is. And so I think I think about more more about that, just the pleasure of being able to turn around and say, okay, you know what, I have an idea, but I think this would work better as a comic book instead of a novel. And to be able to say, yeah, I can do this too, um, that I'm not just, you know, I'm not constrained to one form or the other. It's, it's really a liberating feeling. Oh, yeah. And the more I see authors self-publishing and exploring different options for their careers, every now and again on Twitter, I'll see somebody say, I think I want to write a graphic novel next and having people go, oh, I'm doing it. It's so fun. Like yeah. you, can, you can expand your, your media. Absolutely. You know, whatever Absolutely. whatever medium you're working in, you can diversify that into visual and three-dimensional and I mean there's so many options now. Well, and the and within comic books, the genres are so like it's the same. It's completely I mean, it's not superheroes anymore, basically. Nope. And so you can write a graphic memoir, you can do you can do journalism, you yep. know, like via via the graphic novel format. You can tell any story you want. And I have always been afraid of stagnating. I like being able to do different things and push myself. And I think doing so, it just it keeps me fresh and it keeps me, uh, keeps my mind very mobile. When I did have the chance years ago to, I hate to use the word transition because it sounds like I left novels behind and that's not the case, even though I did sort of take a break. So let's talk about some of the awesome things you have going on now. You have a book coming out or your book that just came out. Yeah. And then you have out. a movie it's coming fun. out. I know. Isn't that weird? The novel is Labyrinth of Stars. And, and this is the, the last Maxine book, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I, you know, it's funny because I do feel like it's the last novel in the Hunter Kiss series in this particular format, which is to say that, that I still feel like there are stories to be told in the Hunter Kiss universe. Um, I don't know how I will tell them exactly. I don't know if they'll be in a graphic novel format. I don't know if I'm going to you know, whether or not it'll be short stories, if I'll tell stories from a different point, you know, point in her life or, you know, or if I'll even flash forward to her daughter. Like, I'm just not sure yet. But this particular arc of her life is finished. Right. You know, as far as, as far as telling it in this format. Right. And, um, and I wasn't, I, I wasn't sure of that when I first started writing the novel, but then the more I continued and I just felt like I'm not sure how I would do it. Um, yep. I just I need time, like to actually reevaluate and think about it, because the ending of the novel is so, like, out there. <laughs> I just, I just, you know, I'm not sure where I would go, really, like from that. I mean, I do. I have some ideas, but but to put it in a novel format like that, it just it would be it would be very very difficult right now, as it stands, and. And there's some other things I want to work on, too, to be honest. No kidding. There has been a little bit of a gap between this book and the previous Maxine book, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So is the same amount of time passed in her world, or does this book pick up where the last one left off? This book pretty much picks up where the last one left off. It's only been about three months, two so to three months. So it's a much shorter timeline. Much shorter timeline. Was it a different perspective for you to come back after so much time away to go back into the world so immediately? Absolutely. Absolutely it was because I, I found that my voice had changed. Oh. Not like drastically, but after taking a year, you know, or so just to experiment writing other things and focusing on graphic novels and, and just, you know, dabbling in short stories, I, um, 
my voice had changed. And so coming back to the Hunter Kiss world, trying to write this novel was very, very difficult for me. Um, I had about five or six false starts uh, where I would write maybe, I don't know, 30 to 40 pages of the novel. And I'd have to stop and sit back and be like, okay, well, you know what? This is fine. This is all fine, you know, what I'm writing. But it doesn't sound like Maxine. And it took me a while to get back into the series. It took me a while to find her voice again and actually to, to find my voice as as it pertained to the series, like a, a way to sort of, I didn't want to write, I couldn't make it so radically different. I mean, it's, it's a series and it's Maxine. This question might be a bit of a stretch, but was going back to Maxine, sort of like past Marjorie's creations, sort of like picking up some of the characters that you've worked out and worked worked within the Marvel universe that were someone else's creation and you had to come back and get to know them before you could move them forward. Was it a similar process? Well, it's interesting because for some of the characters, yes, actually it was. Um, not it, Maxine, uh, a little bit with Maxine, but, um, but more with the boys, more with Grant. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some secondary characters that I actually just couldn't, I couldn't really return to um, just because I couldn't find them, like in my voice. And so, unfortunately, that's why they were left out of the novel. Like, I would have put them in the novel, but I couldn't return to them again. As a writer, I feel like I should have just been able to turn it on and be like, okay, you know what? I, this is my character. I, can, I know this character. It's, it's mine, you know. Certainly, I can, I can write this person again. Of course. But, um, but I, found, I found that wasn't the case with, with all of them. Um, I think because Maxine was so, so, so much a part of me, she was the hardest, not because, um, not because I was, un- you know, I had forgotten her, but because, um, but because our, our voices were so close, um, or had been so close, and now they they weren't. So it was almost like Maxine was written, at, you know, at a time when I was I was I just had a very different writing voice. It just wasn't me anymore. How how excited are you for this book? Is this sort of like is this is this really like buoyant excitement, like fizzy and bubbles? Or are you sort of like, oh, this is scary because it's been a while? It's both. both. <laughs> um, I was really, I was, I was really excited that I finished the book. <laughs> yeah, that, you know what? But, Finishing it is just like you know what you you get you you get a yacht just for doing that. <laughs> that that was a celebration all unto itself. I tell you, finishing that book was a huge relief. Um, Especially but, after false starts of thirty to forty pages each. Yeah. Let oh me tell gosh, you, that was that was not fun. No. I mean, it was a learning process, <laughs> but and I managed it. Uh, yeah, I'm nervous. I'm nervous because it has been like a couple of years since I've had a novel out. Um, but also I just, I do feel sort of a, more than anything, just a deep sense of comfort that I didn't escape entirely. <laughs> nope. And, and you got to tell her story all the way through. Exactly. Exactly. So I would say that's, that is, that is the predominant feeling. One of just, just happiness and comfort. The other thing I've been dying to ask you about, because this is so cool, is you have a film that you have written coming out, an animated movie. Yes, this is true. This is uh, so completely badass. Could you please tell us about this? Because this is so cool. Well, thank you. I um, This was another surprising sort of offer that came on the table a couple of years ago, actually. Um, so Marvel's been doing a series of, of 
of animated films, and they're all done in the anime style. They're all they're all made in Japan, right? Um, and so they did, you know, Iron Man, and I think I can't remember if they I think they had one for the Avengers on the slate. Um, and so they just said, well, you know, we have this we have this idea for a film. We want to do a, a Black Widow versus Punisher film. Would you like to write the story for it? I mean, that's all they had. Literally, they said to me, it was Black. They just they said Black Widow versus Punisher. And they said, what do you think? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm on. Like, just, <laughs> just like, tell me what you want me to do. And so they said, well, just write the story. And so basically I just sat down and I, I thought, okay, it's Black Widow versus Punisher. And it's basically, in some ways, it was like writing a comic book script, except without a lot of dialogue. It was, uh, even in some ways, one could, could describe it as a synopsis for a novel. But um, basically, I just wrote the story, you know, just outlining what happens, you know, in each scene. And sometimes I would throw in lines of dialogue. But for the most part, a very detailed story. Have you seen it? Have you seen it all the way through? I haven't seen it all the way through. I've seen clips of it. Is it weird to see your story in that medium? It's very weird. Um, <laughs> it actually is weird. And the thing is, I don't even know because, like, I, it may not even be um, exactly the story I wrote. Like, it's hard to say because after when something's adapted, you right. know, it's the, the, the next writer puts their input in. And once the animation process begins, you know, they put their input in. So I don't even know how close it will be to the original. It's interesting because having worked on comic books, once you work on comic books, working on film isn't it is not radically different and so it was i have to say uh writing those those comics all those years it was good training for this good training for this good training for the the video game that i did a couple years ago too and it was it's all very much linked to these these visual mediums combined with the literary it's funny how things work out and it's and it's dialogue and emotion in the dialogue yeah because you don't get all those paragraphs of you know what the character's looking at and thinking and feeling exactly. you have to communicate that all through what they say exactly oh that's a challenge which is totally awesome for me because i'm the horrible reader who reads all the dialogue and is like wow that's like five paragraphs of exposition i'm gonna skim that. dialogue <laughs> oh that's what i like dialogue people are talking i love i love a good book that's heavy on dialogue because it's me too. You're, you're like you're eavesdropping on people yeah that's you're not supposed to do that so much Oh yes, and and Julie James, have you read her? Oh yes. Oh gosh, she's a, she's a screenwriter. She's a scriptwriter, and I think she started writing screenplays first, and then started writing novels. But her books are just so much, oh, so much good dialogue, so oh, wonderful. <laughs> so I have heard rumors online that there's going to be a Black Widow movie, like a feature film. Uh, I've heard the same rumors. Do you get to write it? Uh, probably not. <laughs> Can I nominate you? Is there someone I can call and be like, "Yo"? Oh, sure, sure, that would be great. But, um, but I think I think I have a ice. Uh, what is it? A snowball's chance in hell. <laughs> I don't know. You're you're as you're as fluent in Black Widow as anyone else. Well, I, ha I will say I love the character. Um, she is probably my my favorite character in the Marvel universe. I, I admit to being a bit biased. What um, do you like about her? Because I like her too, but I like her because she's human. Exactly. You know, that's she's a fierce human. That's exactly why I love her. She has no superpowers. Nope. She, you know, she doesn't have any powers. She stands as the equal beside, besides like a god, besides all these guys with superpowers, the, the genius Iron Man, a.k.a. Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> and she holds her own. She always holds her own. In fact, not only that, she's usually one step ahead of them. 
Um, and, you know, and there's a reason why she, now I'm not talking about the film now, but in the comics, there's a reason why she once led the Avengers. There's a reason why these guys are intimidated by her. Um, she's just incredibly smart and she's incredibly well-trained and disciplined as far as a writer goes. And, but and as a reader too, that's deeply, deeply attractive to find a character who is so human and so much a woman and so deeply, profoundly sure of herself. Yes. It's really beautiful. You know, I just love her as a character. And, and, and they respect her. They treat yes. her with not deference because she's female. They treat her as she's one of the crew. Yeah, absolutely. That's she's a tremendously of, difficult position to be in. It's tremendously difficult, but also it's, it's, it's very unusual now in some ways because I, I feel like, you know, I watch a lot of film and I watch, watch a lot of television and, 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 you know, I'm always reading. And so often the female characters become, they're not really people. They're like caricatures of like the badass woman or the, you know, like they're the rescue object. They're the sex object, um, but they're not really people. And the thing about Black Widow is that she is, she always seems like a fully rounded person. She, she's a woman, um, she's a soldier, she's a spy, she's all of these things. Yep. She's not just like a, a false image of, you know, of what people think a woman should be. Right. Like, you know, like the stereotype of, you know, what a female spy should be or, or blah, blah, blah. You know, she feels very fleshed out. And she has a vulnerability. Yes, and it's not just the fact that she's human and you can kill her. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and she can get hurt and she can obviously have the crap beat out of her. But she has an incredible amount of strength and vulnerability. Yes. And she uses absolutely. both. And it's like it's fascinating to see how she uses her own vulnerability. I just remember when I was writing her, I just felt so keenly that this was a woman who had She'd been through hell. She'd seen everything. She'd seen everything. Instead of the hardship and, and the, the various tortures that she's endured, and despite all of this, instead of it making her hard and brittle, yeah. it's just made her more compassionate. Will she kill the bad guy? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that she's you know, a cold, hard person. She's, right. she's deeply compassionate, and she has a deep sense of honor and, and a sense of right from wrong. And I think that for a character like her that that has seen so much, her heart has only gotten bigger. Like it hasn't, it, you know, it hasn't contracted. And that's another mark of her character that I love very much. Oh, yes. And the, and the fact that she is able to balance the, the good and the bad that she's doing. Like mm -hmm. she's aware of what she's doing. And that sense yes. of compassion makes her... It makes her actions more and her decisions more powerful. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So do you get to play her in the movie? <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Now, could we have like Marjorie versus Scarlett Johansson? Like have oh, that? I would not even, I would not even try to compete. <laughs> <laughs> she did do a no. very good job with that character. Oh my gosh. She's amazing. She's absolutely amazing. And she has that that stillness in her face mm -hmm. that, like, you know something's about to happen, but you have no idea what it is because it's, it's, it's really, an active stillness. It is. And it's funny because when 
she was first announced for the role, I was like, eh, like everyone, like it's, you know, it wasn't to the same degree as when um, Matt Damon's writing partner. Um, <laughs> oh, Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. I, just, I, I can't believe I forgot his name. When Ben Affleck was, was announced as the actor who was going to play Batman. Yes. The, everyone was the like, The cries what? of horror that rose on the internet were, <laughs> were just like deafening. Um, I didn't feel that way when I heard that Scarlett Johansson had been cast, but I, I just, you know, it's just, I was okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. And then once I saw her in the movies, I was like, ah, like I, I, get I it. got it. I got it. And yes. she, she's been perfect. She's been perfect for the role. One of the things that you talked about while we were in Australia together was that you were the only woman of color at Marvel. Yes. Are you still often the only woman of color in the, in the realms in which you're working? Yes. So how wide of a trail are you blazing for people to follow you? Like, are you just pushing off people to the side and being like, okay, everybody, let's go. I have, the, I've, I'm, I've broken <laughs> in. Run for the door. Go, go. It's, it's weird. I, it's not something that I sit around, I mean, yeah. So I sit around like that, and think that, about it all yeah, the time. That would, be, that would be weird. Like, that would actually just be, like, really weird. Um, That's but, a lot of navel gazing. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I would have, I, there'd be a real problem with me if that was how I was spending my time. It does come up um, because, uh, not just because people will ask me, but because every now and then I do get emails from people and they'll be like, hey, by the way, you know, I'm Chinese or, you know, I'm a, I'm a woman of color and I saw your last name on the cover of a romance novel and I didn't know that Chinese people were writing romances. That, when that happens, I'm like, okay, all right. You know, this is, this is, um, this is, this is good. This is important. Yep. It also becomes important too. I feel like that there's many stories. There are most of the stories that are being told right now in, um, in mainstream fiction and in comic books, both there's no room for girls of color. Like there's just no room for them. They don't have a voice there. They don't have a presence. Um, the, you know, overwhelmingly, most of the characters in YA novels are white. Yep. Um, and it's the same in comic books. Yep. It's the same in film. Yep. And so for people who are looking for a, a mirror, for people who are looking to see themselves reflected in the fiction they're reading, in, their, in the, the movies they're watching, um, in the comic books, there's nothing there for them. There's just an absolute a absence. And I think that 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 absence, that lack of a reflection, it's so it's become so commonplace and so and so all consuming that we don't even notice it necessarily. Like we take it for granted that all romance heroines are white mm -hmm. and all romance heroes are white. Like it's so much so that that if a character wasn't white, I think we might not even notice it then. Like <laughs> that's that's such the default. Yep, and I think that really deforms a person's perception of their place in the world. If you are a young Chinese girl and you're not seeing yourself reflected ever, ever, you know, in the work you're reading, well, okay, like that's how does that how how does that affect how you see yourself, how you see your value in terms of fiction? Like if you yourself become a writer. Like, let's say there's a little Chinese girl and she must be a writer. Is she going to tell stories about the Chinese experience or is she going to tell stories about the white mainstream experience? 
like and how like do you know what I mean like I know exactly what you mean yeah how does that affect one's self-identity and how you you relate to the rest of the world when you never see yourself anywhere or when you do see yourself reflected it's in terrible stereotypes like the whole you know orientalism um I mean like basically like I I love you know I love Hugh Jackman like I love the character of Wolverine but this movie like the the latest Wolverine movie that came out, you know, sure it was, I, I enjoyed it at a base level, Yep. but on a deeper level, I couldn't enjoy it because it's basically about Wolverine going to Japan, killing all the evil Asian men and then taking all the Japanese women. Yep. I mean, that's really like the, the base level of what that movie's about. So colonialism. It absolutely. <laughs> and the same thing with Pacific Rim. You oh have, God. Uh, so, I mean, that movie, I mean, I could, I, I went in to that movie with such high hopes and basically came out feeling like someone had given me paper towels for Christmas. <laughs> that, that was my reaction to seeing that movie. And part paper of it had to do, towels. I mean, all, like, all, you know, there are many things wrong with that movie, but when, but the race issues, like you have, you have the, the, the three white saviors yes. who all look identical. Of course. You have the, the, the Japanese woman who at, in every camera shot in every way is portrayed as almost like in, in certain camera angles, she's almost portrayed like they shoot her like she's a little girl. Yes. Like, so she's infantilized. Um, she's supposed to be this, this, you know, really important pilot, but all she does is sort of stare longingly at her, you know, at her, her, her co-pilot, her big strapping white Australian oh. man. Like her role was just sort of useless, the Oriental doll, basically. But this is typical. Yep. This is this is really standard. Where, uh, and then like every television show that I can I can I can think of, they always have their Chinatown episode. <laughs> yes. Because they need they, to have a diversity. They exactly. Have, they have their, it's like that one episode that features that one actor for his Emmy Award. This will be their diversity episode. They'll right. go to Chinatown. Exactly. They always have a Chinatown episode where they get to play this, the stereotypical Chinese like ding dong music and talk about the Yakuza or the Chinese mafia. It's frustrating and wearing. It makes me want to do something about it. Which you so totally have. Well, that's kind of you to say, I feel like I haven't done enough. I think one of my goals in the future, um, and I've been thinking about this long and hard, is to start telling more stories that reflect voices that are going unheard. And even my own voices when I was growing up as someone who was of mixed race, um, I, never, I never saw myself reflected in fiction, in movies, um, not, not in a way that was realistic, not in a way that, that, that felt like it touched on the actual experience. And of course, everyone has actual, you know, a different experience growing up, you know, biracial in America. That's something I've been thinking long and hard about. And I'm beginning to sort of involve myself more in, in different organizations. I'll be teaching this summer at, um, at VONA, the Voices of Our Nation workshop, which is for, which is for writers of color, you know. Oh, that's cool. It's not something I ever envisioned for myself because I'm, I'm still shy. I'm still very, very shy. In the past couple of years, I've, I've been learning how to overcome that shyness and put myself out there more, and, which is, it's been really good for me. Um, it's been a long process, but a, a good one. It's hard but to do, though. It's really hard to do, especially I've trained myself too well 
to stay within my shell and keep to myself. You know, I, I, I <laughs> yeah, I know I mean, exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's like it's you, you get into your bubble, you get into your routine. I would, I got up like I had my for eight years. I had my routine where I'd get up every morning and I'd work, and you know, I had my cats and I had my dog and I had my like errands I'd run during the day. But basically, I was at home yep. doing my thing, writing. Yep, and I did this for eight years, and it was good, but it was deeply isolating. And I had to learn a whole new vocabulary for myself when I decided that enough was enough and I needed to start like going out into the world. One of the things that I've noticed, though, um, especially on Twitter in the last few years, you know, three years ago on Twitter, I watched a bunch of governments fall on Mm -hmm. Twitter because the American media didn't cover it at all. Now I'm watching, I think, a sort of a a cultural uprising, particularly in the United States, as more writers have the opportunity to reach their audiences directly and have the ability to say to a publisher, no, this does have an audience, mm-hmm. and have more writers say, I want to write the experience of my culture and I want to I want people who who are like me to see themselves in romance, which if there's ever a place where you want someone to be able to see themselves, romance <sighs> would be it. No kidding. Because the, the ultimate message is you are valuable exactly the way you are and you deserve happiness. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I don't is, think there's any top in that. No, there isn't. There is there is no topping that. And that is that is the truth. To have like readers out there who feel like that that this is denied them. That's not okay. I mean, no, it's not okay. It's I not agree. okay. And I, w- I do want to tell you about a book before I forget. Mm-hmm. Because I really liked this book, despite some really sort of ridiculous plot twists. There is a Harlequin super romance called "Back to the Good Fortune Diner" by Vicky Essex. And what a ha- title! The heroine is Chinese American. Her her fam- her parents and grandparents are, I believe, are the ones who immigrated, and she and her brother were born in the United States, and they live in a small town in upstate New York. And her family owns the Chinese food restaurant that everyone goes oh, to. Oh my gosh. And she is determined to get the hell out of town. So she goes through high school. She doesn't have very many friends. She tutors this really popular guy in a class. And then she graduates and she gets up, gets out of town. And then in the bad economy, she loses her job and she has to move back home as an adult. And it is this incredible crushing depression for this character because she has failed in in her own estimations and her parents are like why are you here you should not be here you were in the job why are you back home and she doesn't want to be at home and she doesn't want to work in a restaurant she doesn't want to work over the steam table and she doesn't want to have to deal with her parents fighting all the time and then the the guy that she used to tutor he ended up inheriting his father's farm and he had a son very young and so he has a son who's now in high school and she ends up tutoring his son and getting to know his family. And it is so incredible. I read this book and I was just, oh, I was so into it because I I had so much empathy for her experience and I had so much, I just, I just thought this book was amazing. Like, you I are thought, killing me. The description of it, like the way you describe this book sounds amazing it's magic. That is i thought it was so total great must read the only problem i had was that his father was a 
bodacious racist. Like he wasn't even half. He was <laughs> he was racist all the way to eleven. Like there was just any minute now he was just gonna drop an end bomb. Like he was that bad. And because it's a Harlequin, there's this incredible moment of realization. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't actually happen in real life. But you know what, Harlequin, you go ahead and you dream that dream. You go ahead. Cure well, the racism. <laughs> and yet the race the racism that the father like he says these things that are like not only just the huge like bombs of dude, seriously, did you just say this? But he always he does the, the microaggressions. Oh, God. Like, you know, like, well, you know, your people are always good at math. You know, oh, just God. drop that bomb. And then he'll say something even smaller. And it's like, dude, that's just as bad. And watching the hero negotiate his father, who ha- who already is mad that he can't run the farm because he's not well. Oh, it's just, it's just the thing about super romance is that often I think the the writers are encouraged to pack as much as humanly possible into these little tiny books. And so sometimes there's so many big issues that they can't reconcile all of them. But the fact that they brought them up in the first place, I'm just like, this is great. Please feel free to rip my heart out and hand it to me. It's totally fine. I have to tell you, like, just your base description of this book sounds like it would be like if if it was published outside Harlequin, like in some quote unquote, like highbrow literary press. I know people would be talking about it like across the nation. Yeah. Just your basic description of it. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of super romance authors that are that are just I just love how they are incorporating culture of different mm-hmm. backgrounds. Like Jennifer Lohman has a series where the first book is um, Reservations for Two and The First Move. And then there's another one. But the, the heroines of those books are from a Polish family. And mm. both of them are Polish chefs because their mother ran a very full famous Polish restaurant in Chicago. <laughs> and the thing that's fantastic about her writing is that not only did she get Chicago so right, like I, I, I recognized it. The fact that they have an Eastern European mother who has a very specific set of rules about how you cook and how you live and how you keep mm-hmm. your house and how you, how you behave, all of that informs them. And it's, it's just it's it's incredible when you look at like that's this, wonderful. They have done this awesome stuff with the super romance line. The more I think that there are writers who can say to their publishers with evidence of mm-hmm. b- based on, you know, social media and interacting with readers online. No, really, there's an audience for this. Here they are. Look, I can give you their names. You can talk to them right now. They're online. They're but right also, here. <laughs> not only that, but good stories are universal. Yep, yep. And so it's not just like, it's not just saying, okay, I'm going to write about a Chinese character to target Chinese people. It's about saying that all these stories are universal. So before we go, what are you reading or what have you read recently that you would love more people to know about? Aside, obviously, from your own most excellent books. Well, let's see. I read a really interesting book and it's right here because I brought it with me to Japan. Um... I'm reading like a really good book. It's it's a nonfiction book actually. It's called Cumin Camels and Caravans: A Spice Odyssey. Wait, Cumin Camels and Caravans? And caravans. This sounds like all of the things I like to to read. It's actually a, a spice book. oddity odyssey. Odyssey. It's really really good, and it's by Gary Paul Nabhan. There you go. Nabhan. Yeah. I don't and know what to do with a B and an H together. Navan. Navan. Very interesting, actually. I've really enjoyed it. And then I've also um, 
I'm finishing up. So I'm a huge fan of the the manga, uh, the mangaka um, Kaoru Mori, and she wrote the most brilliant, beautiful. Um, I mean, she's still working on it, so it's not done yet. But it's a series called A Bride's Story, and it's set in Central Asia in um, the early 1900s, and it's about a 20-year-old woman who is sent to marry a 12-year-old boy. It sounds like it sounds like okay. Uh, that's a little bit of an odd, you know. That's weird. Oh, Except, I recognize this. Uh, this artist did Emma. Exactly. Oh my gosh, I had a review of someone who found Emma, the animated Emma, and was like, "Everyone on in Netflix needs to watch this right now." So good. Yes, and so she is amazing. She is absolutely. Her art is brilliant. Her stories are wonderful. Um, because of a bride story, I'm just now beginning to read Emma. And so, and I'm, I'm totally in love with Emma, but I actually got a chance to sit down with her <gasps> and meet her. Cool. Um, yeah. Last weekend, actually. It was, it was set up through the literary festival. Um, I can't say enough nice things about her. I think her sweetness shows through in the work she does because her heroines are always very compassionate and romantic. And the thing I love about her, the women in her book is that they are completely non-sensational like they're not jumping off buildings they're not you know shooting guns they're not like superheroes but within their situation they are deeply proactive deeply sure of themselves um like they they make shit happen basically it's not easy to do like it's actually it's not an easy thing to tell a story about a woman that isn't sensationalized in some way like, we don't have this problem in romance novels, but I'm talking more about, I guess, from, I was switching over, I was thinking about graphic novels for a moment, like superheroes and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a lot of times the idea is, okay, so I'm, I'm writing a woman, so what do I do with her? I mean, like, you know, yeah. uh, she can't just be a woman. She has to have superpowers. She has to be this and that. You know, it's not enough that she's just a normal human being. And Kawamori does not have that problem. Um, she sees women as women and and real women and strong, vital, alive women. I love her work. It's really brilliant. And that's all for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. I thought that was a really fascinating, fascinating conversation. I'm so glad that Marjorie was up early and I was up late so we could meet at the same time. And I'm, I'm telling you, with Skype, there are times when I'm talking to somebody who's on the other side of the planet. They sound like they're on the couch next to me. It's kind of amazing. The Internet, man. Don't don't ever leave me, Internet. The music that you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater. This is Room 215 by the Pete Bog Fairies. You can find this on their album Dust, and I'll have links to the album and to the song in the podcast entry. Penguin Intermix would like you to know about Jennifer Ashley's Feral Heat, a new paranormal romance novella of forbidden desire. Jace Warden is sent to the shifter town in Austin to find a way to free all the shifters from their collars. But pulling off the collars can cause shifters to go mad or kill them outright. When Jace meets Denny Rowe, a wolf shifter with troubles of her own in the past, she volunteers to help him test collar removal and as they work together, they feel the mate bond begin. You can download your copy now wherever ebooks are sold. And thank you to Penguin Intermix for sponsoring the podcast. 
I hope you like this episode. If you have suggestions or questions or things you'd like me to ask Marjorie the next time I talk to her, hopefully with sandwiches, you can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. You can call us at 201-371-DBSA. That's our Google Voice number, and you can leave us a long and rambling, completely nonsensical voicemail, and we will love every second, we promise. One of the best parts of the podcast is the podcast email inbox, so thank you for writing to us. We're going to do a listener mail episode very soon because y'all have some good questions. And wherever you are, Marjorie and Jane and myself wish you the very best of reading. Thanks for listening. <laughs>